is the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Lisbon. And I'm joined today by three fantastic guests. Uh, John O'Sullivan, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on again. It's a pleasure. Uh, Jasmine Baba, how are you? Oh, three of my teams lost this weekend, so not great. How about you? <laughs> I'm okay, I'm okay. My team has had a little bit more success, so uh, I'm coming into this episode relatively content with life. Uh, Jonathan Fidugba, how are you? Hi guys, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to uh, sitting back and um, observing an Evertonian and then Liverpool fan dissect uh, this weekend's game and I hope you're all doing well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, that was the big game of the weekend, you could say, but I want to start off with West Ham United, David Moyes. Um, fantastic week for them, being Sheffield United 3-0 and Spurs 2-1 and they're in the top four now. Um, John, I want to start with you. What do you think of the job David Moyes has done at West Ham so far? And do they have real realistic expectations of actually challenging for a top four place coming into the season? I think the job he's done in the Premier League is as good or better than any other job that any other coach has done with any squad in the league this season. I think he's getting everything plus some out of that squad. Like if you had asked anybody at the beginning of the campaign, would they have seen West Ham in the round fourth spot coming into March? Then everybody would have said no, but he's really getting a great tune out of the squad. Um, when you look at them, everybody knows their role. They're very well drilled. There's a very good, I think, buy-in from the squad to his methods. And he's done a fantastic job there. He's second bite of the cherry at that club. Uh, they just about survived relegation last season. But uh, I've been very impressed with them this term. They're very efficient from set pieces. They're defensively solid. And just the tactical discipline, like I mentioned earlier, has been fantastic. And then they have the outball in terms of uh, Mikel Antonio, who I think is probably, not to disparage him, probably the best, worst player in the league. And then, of course, they have Jared Bowen, who's who's keeping Andrei Yarmolenko out of the team very often on the right wing is another player I like. So I've been very impressed with them as a unit, and it was a fantastic week for them. As to whether I think they can stay in the hunt for Champions League, no, I think they'll probably tail off. But the fact that they're even in this conversation I don't want to be condescending, but the fact that they're even in this conversation, you know, given the circumstances, given how relatively little money they spent in the last year or so, and they've even sold some players like Haller, the fact that they're that they were even mentioning them in the same breath as some of the other clubs is is a fantastic uh, compliment to David Moyes and the job he's done there. Yeah, I think their history is, isn't really comparable to Everton's in terms of league titles, FA Cups. European trophies but I think the modern structure of the club is almost quite similar in terms of the size and the kind of the, the expectations of the fan base in many ways so it's almost a perfect situation from there and I think also his kind of balance of like steel and silk is very very effective and definitely paying off this season and I think it helps too that there's no fans in the stadium to kind of you know maybe put pressure on him because like Jasmine he has kind of got a bad reputation in the last since the United job really in terms of almost being a dinosaur but do you think that he's kind of turning that around now? Yeah, I think whoever, it was kind of a poison chalice at that time at Man United, and I don't think it's fair to judge him on his time there. I mean, people said stuff about Louis van Gaal, and he's a great manager. So, um, But in terms of how well he's done under West Ham with the money they've spent and the kind of personnel they have, it just goes to prove that Moyes can still set up a team really, really well. They're not even extremely overperforming in terms of their underlying numbers which makes it even more scary how good he's made them um but yeah I'm with John 
in thinking that they'll probably trail off just a little bit, um, especially with Chelsea's form under Tuchel. Um, but, you know, West Ham finishing seventh and probably getting into the Europa League is massive for them. Yeah, definitely progress. And for you, Jonathan, what do you think of their kind of tactical setup and the job that Moyes has done at West Ham? Do you think they're a flash in the pan or are they going to sustain a proper challenge for European football this season? Yeah, I think it's a really good argument uh, and a case study for giving managers time. Um, you know, Moyes didn't really get a huge amount of time at Manchester United. And, and of course, uh, there'll be there'll be arguments as to whether he deserved it or not. Uh, I was there at his final level game uh, in the press box reporting on that game when he lost to Everton and, and was sacked the next day. Uh, and so, you know, I'm kind of familiar with the, the, how it all panned out there. But um, he certainly had more time at West Ham to kind of manoeuvre in the way he wanted to. And I think that's manifested in situations like players like Thomas Susek. You know, Moyes clearly loves... Um, to focus on set pieces, marginal gains, um, getting the best out of sort of physical, tall players, target men players that you can play off. Susek's been a, a revelation this season in the Premier League, probably one of the best signings of the season. I think uh, most people would agree. Uh, Kufal as well at right back has been superb. And I think Jesse Lingard is a masterstroke. I, I've been calling for him to get more game time at Manchester United and I don't really understand why it didn't really work out there for him. But, um, you know, he's a fit player, he's motivated and, and he's already showing it with three goals in, in four games. Uh, I think, you know, Moyes likes, like I say, he likes to play with set pieces. They've scored the most set pieces of any team in the Premier League this season, which is a testament to to their kind of tactical organisation. And it's probably also an argument, maybe if there was ever an argument for having no fans, then maybe uh, the West Ham case is a, is a great case study because, you know, um, we, we've, all, we've all seen the situations unfold at West Ham over the years at that stadium, fans running onto the pitch and planting corner flags in the middle of the halfway line and, and, and all, all sorts of shenanigans going on. So um, maybe the calmness of just having nobody around in, a, in an empty bowl in the middle of nowhere um, in London is, uh, is sort of just giving them the tranquility they need to, to, um, to perform. So uh, it was a really good win. And obviously Moyes' first win against Mourinho, which, which is, is a monkey off his back, still hasn't managed to beat any away, uh, top away side in his 15-plus-a-year career in management. So I think there's still, there's still question marks. The jury's still out in terms of his, his general overall level as a manager. But um, certainly, you know what you're going to get with David Moyes. You're going to get a good, hardworking side. You're going to get organisation. And I, I do really think they have a, as good a chance as ever uh, of getting European football. Maybe not Champions League, but I think Europa League they can certainly be in the mix for. And do you think that Lingard has been kind of unfairly kind of castigated as this kind of insta boy, you could say, in kind of the way of modern... He's almost like the poster child of the modern footballer who doesn't take the game seriously. Do you think he's kind of maybe has a chance now at West Ham to really kind of make a second goal of his career? Oh, yeah, definitely. I I, I reject any of those accusations Im- immediately. I mean, we're talking about a player who scored a winner in an FA Cup final. We're talking about a player who's been very consistent. Um, I think his best spell was probably under Jose Mourinho, who turned him into a really elite um, defensive winger uh, who you know pressing sort of wide uh, player uh, I don't think I need to remind anyone about his his um, antics at the Emirates in various FA Cup ties knocking them out of the FA Cup um, an England player who's played at World Cups and scored goals at World Cups there's there's no one will see me getting on Jesse Lingard's back I think every player is entitled to have a life the, the biggest accusation against him is that he dances on Instagram like big deal um, I, I think the biggest issue he ever had in terms of um, maybe disciplinary issues was there was one time on pre-season where he, he went on holiday and I think obviously some of the videos that came out of that was like, you know, some of his friends drinking. But, you know, at the end of the day, big deal. There's bigger things going on in the world. Couldn't care less. Um, he's gone to West Ham and, and already proved his in, incredible fitness. 
um, to play sort of 90 minute games back to back after after having not played for, for a long period of time. So I'll always defend Jesse Lingard. I love him. So um, there's, there's, there won't be any criticisms of him from me. I still think he could do a job at Manchester United. And it's going to look very awkward for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer if West Ham do keep this form up and and, may, and Jesse Lingard fires them into the Champions League because um, obviously that will put pressure on United in, in their own situation. And, and um, you only have to also look across uh, to Italy to Romelu Lukaku, which I'm sure maybe we'll come on to later to see that there's an emerging trend of players improving after leaving Manchester United and, and that raises question marks. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's great to see him enjoying his football to the degree he is as well, for sure. Um, but just then on the other side of Manchester, after speaking of Manchester United, Manchester City, and they beat everything 3-1 uh, during the week, really kind of a class them, to be honest. And they beat Arsenal 1-0 uh, at the weekend. Jasmine, what were your thoughts on this game? Uh, was it just the, the case of them being too good for Arsenal or was it a close run thing or what do you think? Yeah, I think everyone knows that Man City is just too good for anyone right now. Um, and Arsenal is not of the same calibre. Uh, Arteta kind of made out that, you know, it was due to poor quality in front of the goal. Um, but in really, it, <laughs> it, they didn't keep it tight at all. It was more that Man City nullified any good creation. Um, Man City had just tactics. It is absolutely bizarre. Having gone into it in depth on um, when they played Arsenal, it's the just dynamic space occupation, the way that they free up space away from the centre of the field to overload Arsenal's wings to actually make those chances. They had something like one XG within the first 10 minutes. That is nuts. Like, that is... It, they had two pretty much clear-cut chances that they could have scored and put the tie to bed within 10 minutes, which we've seen in so many Arsenal games against Man City. Um, and, you know, Mikel Arteta can say it was due to a lack of quality in front of goal, but no, none of the team actually functioned. And I kind of was upset by the way he went around it. We've been creating better with both Emil Smith-Rowe on the wing and Odegaard in, in, as a 10. And he changed that for Pepe and also put Elneny as the pivot player with Xhaka. And we've not seen any of that really work. And the stats behind it, only seven shots, only one on target, 0.33 XG, 45% possession. None of it was good enough. But really is a testament to Man City's tactics and just their play they've just outclassed everyone this season so far and I really wouldn't be surprised if they keep it up so they have an extra gear isn't it like just kind of can pull away when the crunch time happens and kind of just really make good teams look completely ordinary can't they John yeah absolutely I think a big uh, element of Manchester City this season and Pep Guardiola has reflected on it himself is the fact that he says that he wants his team to uh, run less and to walk more, so you can see them really keeping more possession than they would have. But even in times in the Arsenal game, they kind of dropped off and let Arsenal have the ball a little bit more, just to kind of conserve energy. Uh, and then you see that old Barcelona tactic that he used to employ of resting on the ball so they can be more primed to press. So I think the way they've managed their energy, even outside of like a tactical viewpoint, has been very, has been very impressive this season. And I think... It'll get to a stage where they'll uh, they'll have the league title in England sewn up very early, and I think they'll focus their energies 
and uh, and a lot of their resources into looking to win the Champions League for the first time. And you know, and the evidence we've seen so far, not only on how good they've been, but like how maybe inconsistent a lot of the other uh, bigger teams in Europe have been. We're probably going to reflect on Bayern later, but they haven't been near as consistent this season. Some of the Spanish teams also have suffered their, with their inconsistency. So if you look at the remainder of the competition, you'd have City up there as probably the favourites. And, you know, the English league title, it's done. It's been done for a while, but I think it'll soon it'll soon be official. And uh, they, I, they, they impressed me in this Arsenal game for reasons that you don't really associate with this team. Like I mentioned, there was a time where they kind of just ceded possession to Arsenal and they were like, okay, try and break us. And they couldn't. Like every team, pretty much bar Leicester in one game this season, hasn't been able to break them. Yeah, it's, it's very, a good point because I think that, you know, in Spain, you've Atletico Madrid faltering this week. In Germany, as we'll speak about later, Bayern Munich didn't have a great week. Uh, PSG lost uh, to AS Monaco. Uh, like Jonathan, for you, do you think Man City are the best team in Europe right now? And can anyone really realistically hope to challenge them for that Champions League crown based on their current form? Yeah, it's a good good question. And um, firstly, want to give a shout out to Jasmine for a piece on Spiel Verlagering, which I... Uh, found very engaging and, and, and insightful. Um, I think pr- probably are the best team in Europe. Yeah, I haven't really given it too much deep thought, but you can't really argue against, what is it, 17 wins in a row now? Um, just kind of ticking along. It's been a lot of talk about, obviously, Kevin, Kevin De Bruyne and, and his return to, to the team and maybe how it impacts Jokai Gundogan. So, you know, we'll see how that plays out. Obviously, there's been some comments that they play better without De Bruyne, which I, I find a bit far-fetched, but... Um, haven't really looked too much into the statistics around it to, to kind of take a, a proper view. But um, uh, certainly, obviously, Gundogan's positioning has to change when De Bruyne's in there. So so that, that, that sort of tactical tweak changes things a bit and we'll see how, how that plays out because Arsenal, there were spells where Arsenal were, you know, in the game, certainly. Um, if you look at it from the Champions League point of view, you know, I think they probably are, they, they probably could be considered the favourites. Um and I think if we're talking about best team in Europe, one of the question marks I have maybe for for you guys or whoever, you know the listeners in general is you know is this kind of the team of the superstar or is this the te- the era of the superstar sorry or the era of the team because you know the, the the trend that I saw from the first week of Champions League fixtures was top world talents sort of standing up on the big stage and um, the likes of Kylian Mbappe and Haaland that, that will come on to. Um, rather than any sort of maybe team performances, we've, we've yet to see Atletico Madrid and, and the sort of so you know the, the more um, the, the less individualistic teams maybe in in the competition, maybe the likes of Atalanta who we'll see this week. But um, maybe that's a, a question mark. You know, maybe are Manchester City the best all round team? Um, so certainly squad wise, they've they've been able to manage really well. Um, dealt with any injuries. You know, as I mentioned on the last episode that I was on. Let's not forget they've missed Aguero for the entire season. So. You know the talk of injuries from other clubs. You know, is Man City haven't really had those excuses, um, and they've kind of just got on with it. They've been fortunate in the fact that they've had sort of key players uh, in certain other areas. But when they've had injuries like De Bruyne, they, they've they've stepped up with players like Gundogan. So um, they're certainly the best team in the Premier League, in my opinion. I thought Liverpool would be the best team, but but it's not panned out that way this season. Um, and City have kind of proved themselves, and really City have proved themselves over a good three four year period now. So. Um, I think they deserve quite a lot of credit. And I think Pep Guardiola deserves quite a lot of credit because I was quite critical of them earlier in the season. So, you know, I'm not I'm not absolved of any blame here, you know, but I think there has been a kind of a feeling that they, they don't, I'm not sure they get enough credit really for what they're doing at their club in terms of the consistency over a long period of time um, of performance. So, um, yeah, f- from my point of view, 
I think they're doing really, really well and they deserve all the praise they get at this moment in time because they've, they've, they've managed the pandemic in the, in the best way possible and, and they've been flexible enough to, to adapt to sort of long injuries as well. So uh, from, from my point of view, you can't knock them. Definitely, yeah. They really outclassed everything, as I said earlier, uh, midweek, but everything did go to Anfield and win 2-0 on uh, Saturday evening. Their first win at Anfield since 1999. I was three years old when they last won at Anfield, quite remarkably. And I was actually, in 2010, they last beat Liverpool at all at Goodison Park. Tim Cale and Mikel Arteta, the current Arsenal coach, the scores on that day. Um, so, yeah, it's a big thing for everything to go to Anfield and win 2-0. Obviously, they're not in the best form at the moment, but... To go and do that is a big psychological win for Carlo Ancelotti and for his new kind of charge Riverton players. Um, and I thought, you know, the result was mainly down to Ancelotti, to be honest. The way he set the team up was very intelligent. They didn't have most of the ball, but they countered very well when they did, and they were very comfortable defensively. They were never really tested that much. Um, he played Mason Holgate at right back to cope with Sadio Mane. He did very well with him. And Seamus Coleman in the right wing to cope with uh, Andy Robson, kind of his rampaging runs from left back. And then he had, you know, Richardson in front with uh, James Rodriguez in behind. And it was the partnership that paid dividends in the first five minutes when James played through Richardson for the first goal. Um, very interesting game. A very satisfying game from Evertonian perspective. Uh, but for you, John, from a Liverpool perspective, it must have been quite infuriating. Oh, yeah. Ancelotti has a real Indian sign over Liverpool in the last couple of years uh, at both Everton and at Napoli. Uh Using the same kind of uh, same kind of tactics at, at both clubs to good effect, and you know when you think of football, flexibility—the term flexibility—is usually, you know, given to uh, given to attacking teams who have like interchange between players and what have you. But I think Everton were very flexible here, and it's something that uh, Ancelotti done at Napoli when facing Liverpool in the Champions League. It was a very like amorphous defensive shape. So you mentioned Holgate at right back. Well, in some phases, that was almost a back three and they, he would kind of shift into a right-sided centre-back role. And he used to do the same in Napoli with the Serbian uh, centre-half, Milinkovic. So it was kind of from the same playbook and uh, Everton executed it perfectly. I thought kind of had uh, James and they had Richarlison almost in kind of free roles and to kind of let them float ahead of uh, a very like disciplined rest of the team in, in a very good and uh, compact shape. Um, I thought that uh, they they use Richardson extensively as an outball and it worked spectacularly. He uh, scored the first goal and then obviously he had a big part in creating the incident for the penalty and the killer goal. So I think Ancelotti once again has got it spot on. And you know, there's been a, there's been a couple of games this season where they've kind of played on the break and they've looked very potent. Of course, they had the three all of all, at Old Trafford uh, not long ago, and then they followed that up with one of their next big away games at win at Liverpool. So I think in terms of uh, setting everything up a certain way to negate uh, attacking teams, he, he's done fantastically well. And now whether they get fourth, I think, will be uh, contingent on beating kind of the smaller teams. I thought they might have a big reaction after uh, drawing at Old Trafford, but then they lost at home to Newcastle. So if they can kind of like eradicate that kind of kink from their game, they could they could well end up in Champions League, especially because they don't have European football. They have pretty much an entire week bar FA Cup weeks to focus on the one fixture. And there isn't many better tacticians in the game than Carlo Ancelotti. So they're definitely, definitely dark horses for that. Um, their first win there since 1999, and it, it was thoroughly deserved. I didn't enjoy it one bit. Uh, it was frustrating. Uh, as if lockdown wasn't bad enough to see Liverpool just regress into an absolute omni shambles <laughs> hasn't been fantastic for me. But look, let's 
let's make no bones about it. Everton thoroughly deserve that. I think fair play to Angelo too in the way he's coached some players. Like Michael Keane, for instance, was a colossal, colossus the centre back, playing really, really well as he has done all season. Uh, ben Godfrey signed from North City has been revelation this season. Not just his kind of you know on the pitch performance, but his character off the pitch as well. He's really kind of assimilated well into the squad. Uh, Tom Davies is much blind by Everton supporters as being kind of you know distracted, much like we mentioned earlier, uh, Lindegaard kind of almost, you know, too focused on photography and skateboarding and fashion, but he's kind of reinvented himself as a six under Ancelotti and he's learning the ropes and working very well with uh, Alan on the training ground by all accounts. And uh, he's becoming a really important part of this team. And it's just, uh, it's very interesting to see what Ancelotti is doing. As I said earlier, I think um, he's kind of an antithesis, you could say, to a lot of the modern kind of, you know, identity-based coaches and that he takes games as games, game by game, match by match, you know, adapting to situations, changing in game. And sometimes he gets it wrong against Fulham, for instance. I thought he set up incorrectly, but, you know, for the most part, you can't match his experience. He's a world-class coach, and I think uh, Everton are much better for him. Uh, and for you, Jonathan, what do you think about Ancelotti and the job he's done at Everton so far? And how do you think of this game as a setup and stuff? I think Ancelotti's brilliant. You know, um, I, really, I really think he's, he's done a good job there so far. Um, you know, the, the Everton squad isn't hugely different. Okay, I mean, there are some signings, but it's not hugely different to the one that Mar- Marco Silva had. And he was, you know, nothing short of a disaster at times, wasn't he? Um, I'm sure, Alan, you'll, you'll, you'll have more comments to say on that. But yeah, I'm admiring both of your calm, your sort of calm rationale, both of you guys uh, on, on, on dissecting this game. Um, very, very measured comments. Uh, yeah, it, you know, it's, I think it, the biggest shame for me was there was no fans because that would have been some atmosphere. Um so, you know, we'll see if Everton can, can, can they do that Anfield with fans, you know, we'll see in the years to come. Um, you know, certainly it adds a, another layer of, um, another nice layer to that, to that sort of rivalry anyway. Uh, but I think Ancelotti's done, done a fantastic job and, and we'll see where they go. I think he's managed Hammers quite well in, in, in his, um, not giving him too many minutes. Obviously he took him off and, and went to two up front in the latter part of the game. And I thought that was a, a good tactical move. Calvert-Lewin coming on and, and, and he looks to be getting maybe Richarlison back into some sort of form, which, which is really necessary because Richarlison, I think he's a quality player and um, he's maybe not quite done it in the last year or so, just just maybe dip slightly from his level of potential because I think he can go to the top. So, uh, yeah, f- from Everton's point of view, you know, he's, he's getting the like, players like Tom Davis, uh, you know, in, into form as well. So, you know, it must be, it must be good to be a blue at this moment in time and, um, you know, from Liverpool's point of view, it was it was a bit of a, a nightmare, really, wasn't it? Yeah, the fans' point is good because um, I think sometimes when Everton play Liverpool, it's almost as if there's so many fans in the stadium and the, the atmosphere is so heated and so passionate, they can maybe go for things when they should be going for things. Whereas with Ancelotti and with no fans, they afford to sit back and kind of play a more calculated game. And I think we saw the benefits of that on Saturday afternoon in the way that they went about it. You know, it was a very measured approach uh, led by Ancelotti's coolness especially. Um, but the Marcus Silva point is good. It's true, the squad is pretty similar, but there is differences. I think, you know, Decore, for instance, is a massive addition. His energy, his strength, his industry just changes the game for Everton, really, in the way that he kind of inspires the team almost on the pitch. I think he's the most important player on the pitch for Everton this season. And then Beg Godfrey, as I mentioned, is a very good addition. Uh, James obviously gives you that killer instinct that moment of class that nobody not many people in world football can actually deal with really you know 
Um, and then also, of course, you have Alan, who's a fantastic player. He's injured at the moment. So he's on his way back to full fitness, but uh, he's a very, very good addition to the squad. Um, but yeah, it's certainly a good time for you, Blue. But John, from a Liverpool perspective, like, what do you think is the way forward, and why are kind of what's the sources of your frustrations as a red at the moment? Uh, the way forward is Diogo Jota and Inshallah. Uh, the source of my frustration is that. Okay, uh, in this in this instance, Liverpool didn't play well at all. Like, and they definitely deserve to to lose. But like in the Leicester game, they were actually really good for about an hour, and they still lost. So a lot of the frustration is that the team have been kind of playing well, but they don't have the conviction or the confidence to capitalize upon the openings that they're getting. Uh, in terms of their XG and their underlying numbers, I think they're probably the third best team in the league. But like their form has been absolutely rotten. They've been unfortunate in certain ways in that their big chances are falling to Roberto Firmino. And I mean, that guy couldn't finish his dinner for the last 18 or so months, unfortunately. So like you're thinking that if Jota comes back into the team and I'm also wary of putting way too much pressure on his shoulders because he's been out for two months. So surely there'll be a, a time of him like re reacclimating back into the hurly burly nature of Premier League football after such a, an extended absence. But uh, <laughs> we're just hoping that some of the chances that would have fell to Firmino in recent games or would have fell to Mane, who's been badly out of form. It's just that Liverpool don't have the luxury to rotate him because the alternative is to play Divock Origi and he kind of falls into the Firmino category as well, unfortunately. So you're thinking that if, if the chances had fallen to, say, Jota or Salah, that Liverpool could have uh, could have won a couple of more of these games. So I, I think he'll be a massive addition back into the team. And uh, the frustration is, yeah, mainly just like a lot of decent performances in this run, and they just haven't they haven't been able to capitalize upon it because I think their their confidence is absolutely brittle and it's rock bottom at the minute. So maybe even the return of Jota and Naby Keita, who's probably an underappreciated player outside of the bubble of Liverpool fandom, even though a lot of Liverpool fans don't rate him either, inexplicably, in my opinion. I think they'll hopefully provide, if if not just fresh legs, then a bit of confidence to their other teammates. Yeah, I think Richarlison is definitely the best Brazilian striker on the pitch on Saturday. And I think, you know, Jonathan's point is good about him. But I think with Richarlison, he's almost been taken... He's lost some of the spotlight to Dominic Cavalloon and the way Cavalloon has changed his game. Because Cavalloon was often a hard runner, as was Richarlison. And that was the way they played. They both ran very, very hard. But now Cavalloon has moderated it slightly so that he's kind of saving all his energy and strength for the final third and for the box. And that's why he's scoring so much more goals. But as a result, Richarlison has been shifted mainly to the left wing. And he's still doing the running and not getting the same you know, dividends that Cavaloon is getting. I think you know, Richarlison has a healthy ego. He kind of is a, you know, he's kind of famously known for his almost resting bitch face, you could say. Um, and that's a good thing for me. I think it's good to have players with that character. It kind of raises the standard a bit. But uh, it can get him down sometimes. But uh, I think that... All it's going to take for Richardson is a good run. And I think hopefully that can be the start of it, this Merced-Yag performance. And I think he'll pretty quickly be back into the level that we expect of him, for sure. Um, but Jasmine, just for the last word in the derby, what, what are your thoughts on it from a neutral perspective? It did look pretty bad for Liverpool from my perspective. It's just something not going quite right. And I definitely agree with John that all the good chances that you have that fall to uh, Firmino is just, the worst way to view it from it's just it's almost heartbreaking to see because even against Leicester even against Everton there were still chances created 
the system is still working in terms of tactical progression. It's just that obviously defensive issues and then that final third and yeah, fully deserved from Everton and I I always liked Ancelotti as a manager. Um, it's something about him that's just class, oozes class both tactically and as a person. And I think Everton found a very good click with him. The only um, thing is with the league so stacked at the top end with qualifying for Europe, I would say that not finishing in at least the Europa League spots would be a very big disaster for them. And um, I just wonder if they can build on that consistency going forward to finish in fifth or sixth or even higher. Yeah, I think the home form is a problem and breaking down the smaller teams. I think Ancelotti is very, very good at countering the bigger teams when the onus is on the opposition to attack. Um, I think he's an expert at that. But we have found it, everything I've found it difficult to kind of break down the smaller teams, especially Goodison Park. So I think if they want to finish top four at the moment, I don't think that I would be confident they will. I think they're too inconsistent at home, especially. Uh, I think they need to improve in that and pretty quickly. But I think Alan is coming back soon. Hamas has come back to full fitness. He's kind of been struggling all season. So I think it's going to be an interesting climax of the season for them, for sure, especially with the FA Cup game against Man City and the horizon. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting. But just as a final point, John, just without dwelling on the game too much, we'll take a quick flight to Germany pretty soon. But just kind of, like, he must be very frustrated because like I was speaking to a good friend who's a Liverpool fan after the game on Saturday. And I, I fell from him in a way because obviously it was a great result for Everton to go to Anfield and win in that way. But, you know, he was kind of saying like, if City win the league in the way they are going to win it this season, it appears, it's almost as if Liverpool's title win is this red speck in this blue ocean. And that, you know, the fact that they didn't get to celebrate it in front of fans, with their fans, after so many years of waiting, it almost feels as if it's like a Shakespearean tragedy. And that the emotional and psychological blow of that title win and then failure to retain it could have very damaging consequences for Liverpool as a club in the next 10, 15 years? Or is that being hyperbolic? No, not at all. I mean, it almost feels like it didn't happen from a fan's perspective because there was no big parade in the streets of Liverpool after winning the title. We saw after the Champions League, there was almost a million people there and it was just like epic scenes and, and, and the bus ride journey through the city and fireworks and all of that kind of pageantry and the kind of stuff that emotional figures like Jurgen Klopp like. And I think I think that kind of stuff energizes him and energizes some of the players. And I think a lot of them have missed the crowds as well. But yeah, like it's, I think it's really put a spanner in the works for Liverpool. They're a self-sufficient club. The owners don't really pump in money. Liverpool spend their own money kind of in a ma- manner similar to Manchester United. Although Manchester United just have access to more money because they're richer. But it's the same kind of thing where the Glazers don't really put in their own money. So I think last season, certainly uh, Liverpool would have probably moved on one of Mane or Salah because their their strategy up until now has been buy to sell and they would have reinvested for players that would have you know, been there for the future years. But as it is now, they mightn't be able to fully execute that strategy. So they're going to have to kind of have a rethink in the middle of a global pandemic where they haven't got really any money coming in. So it's just kind of been just horrifically unlucky for the club. And like when you win a title, you don't want it to be a flash in the pan. You want to build upon it and you want to go from strength to strength. But now Liverpool have gone from looking at, oh, we might, we might be, we might win a couple of more leagues and get to some more Champions League finals and really 
establish ourselves as a dynasty team. And now you're like, oh shit, West Ham might finish above us and we might get Champions League football. And we're going to end up signing some like obscure younger players who are unproven and we won't be able to attract a big name. So uh, it, it's kind of a it's kind of a nervy enough time uh, from that perspective. I think uh, I think the lack of the title parade though just really hurts and the lack of being able to celebrate it out in the open. I mean, <laughs> I'm 29, so like I, I'd only seen Liverpool win the league title once in my entire lifetime, and that was last year. So I'd been dreaming of it all of my life. What would I do? Where would I go? How many pints would I drink? Who would I take the piss out of? And as it was, I watched it in a, in my girlfriend's bedroom in Riscommon by myself. And uh, so <laughs> even just going from the anecdotal experience of myself, it was, a, it was a fairly grim time and it's just continued on like that, unfortunately. Yeah, it's definitely. I think maybe Roy Keane is kind of, uh, he's a man who can appear to have a throwaway comment in him. I think every comment he makes is highly considered. And I think that, you know, his bad champions jibe is going to be you know, it, it's going to be aired quite a bit, I think, in the years to come, the way things are going. Um, it's quite a, a cutting comment, you could say. Uh, Jonathan, what, you want to say something on that? Yeah, third third worst ever champions um, in, in history after Leicester and Ch- Chelsea 2015-16. So uh, your comment there about Joaquin, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting debate. But I, I, think, I think John, I mean, the comment I wanted to make is just, yeah, jo- I think John touches on a really good point there, which is, I think Klopp, Klopp feeds off the, you know, obviously I'll leave John with a final word on that as well because as a fan, he, he reflects the views better than anybody. But I do think as well, just to back up that, that, that argument, you know, I think, I think, I do think if there's one thing we've seen this season, it's that Klopp really feeds off that emotional energy from the fans. It's always been the way, it's always dictated his choices, even in terms of where he goes as a manager. And, you know, it's a big reason he, he went to Liverpool. He wanted to be at a club where he can sort of reconnect with the fans and, and try and um, replicate maybe um, how, how he fared at Dortmund. Uh, which is a similar sort of hotbed in terms of the, the you know the, the stadium and that kind of thing when it's when it's when it's in good form and y- you can see really Klopp struggled this season with the the that side of it I think uh, he's been really tetchy in interviews from day one it's not even even since the bad run of form you know he's generally been pretty salty when they don't win but I think even from the beginning of this season he's just looked a little bit off and and I think one point to back that up was when when Liverpool were allowed fans when there was that two thousand fans allowed at that brief period. Um, we saw him like pumping his fist in the crowd, even to that small amount of fans, and and he seemed to sort of be re-energized by that. And even though it was such a small amount of people, I, I felt like he was. It kind of almost reminded him of why he loves management, if that makes sense. And I think he's he's really really missed that. Now, there's a debate about as, as to whether you know your motivations as a manager like that. That's a different question, but I think you can definitely say it, it's certainly been completely unforeseen circumstances, hasn't it? Because you know, other managers have had, to, have had to deal with that as well, so it's not exactly unique to, to Klopp or Liverpool. But certainly, I would I would definitely back up John's point there in the sense of I feel like Klopp has, has kind of struggled this season with um, the whole situation. If I'm honest, yeah, I think it's a it's a perfect storm, isn't it? Really, it's kind of a very unfortunate situation for them. Um, but yeah, I guess another dynasty um, we can talk about is Bayern Munich. And Jasmine, you're in Germany. You uh, keep your ear to the ground and all things going on there. They had an interesting week. They drew three three with. Arminia Bielefeld and lost 2 1 to Eintracht Frankfurt. Um, last week we were speaking about how, even though they didn't play, it was maybe the ideal week for them. But then as soon as the week finished, it's kind of been tough for them, right? Yeah, it's just the whole trip to Qatar and then coming back, Müller and um, Pavard catching coronavirus. Um, they've got loads of injuries. And I think the kind of congested 
February schedule list for them is starting to take its toll. Um, but we can't um, we can't just look at Bayern Munich just getting sloppy around the basics because I think that's what it basically is for them. They're still performing very well um, and they still have amazing quality for the games that they don't play well. Them coming back for Emilia Bielefeld, who has been playing quite well for a promoted team. Um, but yeah, it really opens up the league now. Um, it's only two points where we thought, you know, Bayern would run away with it once again. But now we've got a proper title race with Le- Leipzig just two points behind them. Leipzig won 3-0 against Hertha and on the XG, they're the best team in the league. Um, they've got the best defence um, in the league. And it's the whole top four has basically blown open with that. Because if you look at Eintracht Frankfurt themselves, they I've been saying week by week that they're still the most informed team of the Bundesliga. Um, that's gone on for 15 games now. They've uh, lost one in their last 17 Um, And they've got the exact same form as Wolfsburg. uh, Won 11, drawn 9, lost 2. Both 7 points away from uh, first place. Um, So it's interesting to see how Bayern bounce back for this, especially with the midweek game um, against Lazio. Um, What Eintracht Frankfurt have, which the other three don't, is that Eintracht Frankfurt aren't in any other competitions. They've only got the Bundesliga. And they managed to beat Bayern quite convincingly without their top scorer in Andre Silva. The, the kind of work Adi Hut has done there is it, just phenomenal, really. Um, so we, I don't think we've only just seen RB Leipzig thrown their um, hat into the race. We've seen... Wolfsburg and Eintracht Frankfurt also really like if they slip up more points, which is entirely plausible now. Um, yeah, they also have a shot. Definitely. And just touching on Eintracht Frankfurt, um, we, I remember before uh, Luka Jovic returned to them from uh, Real Madrid and loan for the rest of the season, there was kind of talk about whether he'd be able to kind of reintegrate into the team because it's different than the one that he left. But how do you feel he's got on with Andre Silva in terms of on the pitch and how has he performed since rejoining? I mean, it's been perfect. He fits in like a glove. I think uh, we said that said that when after his first game as a sub, when he scored, was it twice or once? I, twice in yeah, two was, minutes. And everyone was saying, "Oh, he scored as many goals as two seasons at Real Madrid, etc." Yeah, he's fitted in fine, but that's also a testament to again Adi Hus's, um tactical philosophy and what he's done at the club, where as long as he's got a good quality player to play in those positions that he wants, that it works off quite well. And it, it's just, it's not, I think it was as Jonathan was saying in the Champions League that we've got either like a, a good all-rounder team or a superstar. Eintracht Frankfurt's a good all-rounder team. And I think they're a bit like, Oh, maybe not exactly like the Leicester season of them winning the Premier League, but there's like glimpses of how they work together so well. And Jovic has just come in and fit straight back in. So it was a very, very 
good um, loan signing for them. And I wouldn't be surprised if he wanted to go back. Yeah, apparently he stopped taking Spanish lessons. Um, I don't think he's too enamored with the idea of going back to the Dean Zilan in, uh, in Spanish capital. But uh, just t- touching on Bruce and and Gladblack, uh, they lost 2-1 to Mines uh, this week. Hmm. Um, what's the reaction been since Marco Rose has been announced as the next Bruce Dortmund manager uh, in terms of their outlook for the rest of the season, you know, what coaches could possibly come in and also, you know, how they could fare in the Champions League. I mean, we'll touch on the Champions League a bit more later, but just in terms of their domestic potential, what do you think the I, announcement has done for them? I think, I think Gladbach have been, oh, I'm going to ruffle a few feathers here, but they've been overperforming for a bit. And what's happened is that now when I look back at games, and I see their tactical setup. I am confused <laughs> at what they're trying to do. Against Bynes, they went with like a 3-5-2, which they did against Bynes earlier in the season too. And they looked unmotivated. They always have a problem when teams give them the ball. They're, they're just better at, you take the ball, we'll have this high-intensity counter and when they don't have to counter, they look a bit lost. And that was definitely the case in against Mines this weekend. And I don't think the the news surrounding Rosa has particularly helped. I don't think players care that he's leaving. Um, managers leave all the time. Players care should care about themselves first and foremost and how they get on. But they don't exactly at the moment look invigorated by the news. And I think the way the club has kind of gone about it uh, isn't great. <laughs> it's just things like yeah, what Rosa was saying about taking players with him to Dortmund or him putting off the rumours for so long, the way that it got announced, it's just all a bit miscommunicated, a bit like their tactical tactical structure. It's just all a bit of a blur. Um, so it doesn't look too great. And they, this loss in such a hard few weeks for them, they've got Man City, which, you know, Man City on the best team, one of the best teams in Europe right now. They won't want to face that. Um you know, they're, they're probably, they might lose out on any European spots this at the end of the, the season. So it's kind of like, who do we get next? How can we reinvigorate this team? And do you have any premonitions about who that could be? Or do you have any kind of maybe the, even the, the kind of the mold of person they could go for? Uh, well, the sporting director, Max Abel, was talking about having like ups powerful kind of play project and I think out of all the available managers um that's out there for them uh, Jesse Marsh has to be favorite um we've seen Jesse Marsh's name he's the manager of RB Salzburg and we've seen his name kind of come up before with the Dortmund job um I think he would be good in what Maxi Bell is trying to do I think there's a serious chance that Jesse Marsh can be a better Rose than Rose was at the club too um, in terms of he's got more of a tactical philosophy with the uh, club he knows how to be more flexible tactically Um, also the job he's done at RB Salzburg the players he he has to actually get them 
through to you know Champions League qualification it's he's got um a definite reputation other names being thrown around is Florian Kofield from Werder Bremen he has come up through Werder Bremen and that's all he's ever stayed at I would say it's probably too much of a big jump for him at the moment um, they lost to Hoffenheim on the weekend and they barely created. It was quite a bad performance. But also that's being thrown around is young boys' um, Sioana, um, who took over from Adi Hutter and is doing quite a good job there. Uh, again, I would say it's a bit, a bit more of a step up and maybe not as good as a fit, but I would say Marsh is definitely Abel's favourite. Certainly interesting to follow and see what happens there. And um, what happens with Borussia Mönchengladbach for the rest of the season, the Champions League especially. Um, you mentioned Orbi Salzburg. Uh, they had a former striker doing quite good things for Borussia Dortmund and Erling Haaland scored a cracking overhead kick. Actually, gravity-defining overhead kick um, against Schalke when they won 4-0 away from home in a, in a derby. Um, we can talk on him a little later when we talk about the comparisons with Kylian Mbappe. Uh, just before we go into the Champions League uh, and Europa League kind of review, I'd like to talk on Spain a little bit. Some interesting games. Atletico Madrid played Levante twice in the space of a week. They drew 1-1 uh, at the Estadio uh, Ciudad de Valencia um, and then lost 2-0 to them at home. Uh, and Real Madrid uh, beat Real Valdez 1-0. So they're now three points behind Atletico. And it's quite interesting because like in Spain are kind of throwing the choco tag at them, but in reality, it's kind of a case of them regressing to the mean, you could say, because if you look at their underlying statistics this season, their XG at both ends is actually far away from what they've been achieving. And that's partially down to the overperformance of Jan Oblak in one end and Luis Suarez the other end, and also Marcus Llorente. Um, like Oblak is, in my opinion, the best goalkeeper in world football, and he's the way he's performing for Atletico this season especially has been superhuman and he's making saves he shouldn't be making and he's keeping clean sheets when he shouldn't be keeping clean sheets and on the other end of the pitch Marcus Llorente I spoke to him last week a huge fan of his physically he's immense he's a beast in terms of his fitness and he's also a killer in the box he's finishing chances he shouldn't be finishing I think his xg is one point something and he's got eight goals to his name this season uh, to, com- go- to combine with seven assists. So he's relatively close to hitting double figures on both, which is quite an achievement for a player who was cast aside pretty uh, ruthlessly by Real Madrid just two years ago. Um, elsewhere in Spain, Barcelona drew with Cadiz uh, one all in quite remarkable circumstances. They completely dominated the game at something like 20 shots, um, but conceded to a, a last-minute penalty. Um, so... Yeah, it's quite an interesting week uh, in Spain. Sevilla are playing right now against Asasuna, and if they win, they actually go above Barcelona into third place. Uh, so it's very, very competitive. Um, John, what, what are your thoughts on Atletico? I know you've been kind of impressed by them this season. What do you think about uh, what's going on with them at the moment? Well, I obviously cursed them because in the last episode I'd said that they're, they're definitely going to win the Spanish title. So in, in classic me fashion, I've got it spectacularly wrong and it's on the record and it will live on the, in the internet forever. So that was a great moment for me. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think Levante just have the Indian sign over them this week and that could be that could be fairly fatal. They're, uh, they're two points ahead of Real Madrid, um, but they, they also have a game in hand, but they also have to play Real Madrid again. So like it's... 
it's it's going to be more open than I than I envisioned it being. Um, I don't think this is a vintage Real Madrid side by any way, shape, or form. But they're still managing to pick up and tie together wins despite having a bit of an injury crisis at the moment. So Zinedine Zidane is just uh, he he has a, he just has an ability to eke out wins when it comes to clutch time. It feels like the entire pattern of his Real Madrid career has been uh, on the cusp of being sacked and then put together a brilliant run and win something and repeat. And uh, we might be into the final throws of him into his. Uh, into his kind of pattern of uh, of beginning to put a put a run together and end up winning something, uh, I would be devastated for Atletico Madrid if they didn't win it. But uh, it, it looks like it's going to be more of a competition than uh, than than I envisioned, and uh, it'll be very very interesting to see them play uh, Tuchel's Chelsea uh, this coming this coming week in the Champions League. I think uh, I think that'll be a nice style clash. You'll have Atletico Madrid, albeit they've they've really kind of taken the handbrake off tactically this season, but I envision them playing quite defensively. Against uh, Tuchel's Chelsea, who who have been very easy on the eye uh, so far uh, in his tenure in, in London, so I think that'll be very a very interesting clash. But uh, after after putting myself out there on a limb, thinking that Atletico Madrid will definitely win the title, I might be having second thoughts now. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting the Madrid point because Real Madrid are very very good at switching focus and switching momentum, and when they put together a good run of games, they can really kind of change their outlook completely, and that's very much the case if you read the reports coming out of Madrid at the moment is that they very much switched focus now they're at the business end of the season it's their favorite time of the season it's when games are decided titles are won and I think by comparison Atletico are better playing on the shoulder I think they're better when they're the ones kind of chasing kind of under the radar that's the way Simeone operates that's the way he likes it and I think that when he's kind of almost carrying the can for the season and leading the race in the way that they were I, I don't think it suits Atletico's self-perception as a club and Simeone's self-perception as a coach um, and I think that you know Madrid have characters in their squad you know Tony Cruz, Casemiro and Luka Modric to name three who are all in very very good form they're all seemingly indestructible um, and they've Sergio Ramos to come back as well so I think it's going to be a very interesting title race uh, for the final few months I don't think Barcelona have the consistency they need or the mental strength or the know-how even even though that sounds ridiculous to to really challenge for the title, but I think that uh, Real Madrid are definitely going to be in until the very end, at least. And I think that Sevilla also could be a potential dark horse. Um, they're playing very, very good football as well, and I'm interested to see how they get on tonight against Asasuna. Um, but yeah, but it's some interesting things happening in Spain and Italy too. Uh, Jonathan, I know you're a big fan of Romelu Lukaku, uh, and he was quite good in the Milan derby, wasn't he? Yeah, he was fantastic. Uh, I think it was. I think he's the I read a statistic that says that he's scored in more consecutive derbies, um, Milan derbies, than any player since the 1950s, I believe. So, yeah, I think it's four or five consecutive Milan derbies he's scored in now. Uh, obviously called out Zlatan after the goal. Um, they've got some sort of bit of a beef going on there, which is a, it's an interesting one. But, uh, yeah, Inter Milan really have taken the initiative in the title race now with that win. Um, AC Milan looked to be maybe the ones who were going to pull off a surprise potentially this season. Um, nothing's finished yet. Juventus are still, although they're some way back, you can you can never really write off Juventus until they're until they're dead and buried. So, um, but certainly the the initiative is is with with Inter now and and Lukaku just showed showed the quality he has. Obviously, when you play him to his strengths, he's he's a world class striker. Um, he was allowed time and space to run into, which is always dangerous. Um, Especially if you're playing a kind of a high line where he can 
he can kind of pick up space slightly deeper and actually run at you as a defender, run into channels, which he did for, for one of his goals. Uh, and obviously link up play with Lautaro and Mart- Martinez as well. You know, he's, Lukaku's not just a good um, goal scorer. He, he's a provider as well for the, for that team. Um, I think it's a, it's a testament to what happens when a manager has faith in you. Um, Antonio Conte has wanted Lukaku for years. He wanted him at Chelsea. He wanted him, you know, he's wanted him wherever he goes. And, and that faith that he's had, he's finally got him and he's using him in the right way. He's built his whole team around him, essentially. Um, you know, the Conte's system is pretty well documented. Um, he loves the, the wing backs and playing into a, a, a sort of target man striker, three five two formation. And, 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 and Lukaku just fits into that perfectly, what Conte wants to do. And he knows how to get the best out of him. Um, he didn't really get the love. Uh, at United in the in the latter part of his his career, there, but he he's proving uh, what he can do, and you know you, he and and Ashley Young will be uh, Scudetto winners in the in the coming months, which which I'm sure few would have imagined when they when they departed United. Absolutely, Nicola Barella is some player, isn't he? Yeah, and I think uh, also Bastoni, uh, the centre back, I think is a player to certainly look out for. Um, but yeah, Inter have got a lot of good players. They they they've spent a lot of money and they've had a lot of investment. There's rumours about the, the the Chinese owners. You know what's going to happen there. There's, there's some talks of maybe divesting from from Italian football. Maybe um, I think it's the Suning Group. So we'll see what happens there. But certainly at this moment in time, you know they've, they've got so many options in midfield, like Brozovic, Eriksson. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's looking good for Inter fans right now. And obviously they'll always be happy to win win the derby. And it's, it's another unfortunately another big sort of derby game with no fans. You know where it would have been great to see the reaction of. Uh, into fans, I'm sure they're loving Lukaku at the moment. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And just talking about fans at games, I was struck by Barca Paris Saint Germain during the week of the Champions League because you know obviously the last time they met was in uh, 2017 when Barcelona pulled off that famous comeback and Messi was photographed kind of climbing onto the advertising hoardings and kind of rallying the supporters after Sergio Roberto scored the the winning goal in the last minute. And I thought it was strange to see that game such an illustrious fixture in modern football and a grudge match too, you could say, taking place without fans. But uh, but it was a stunning game. And of course, we all know how it went. Kylian Mbappe scored a hat-trick and kind of announced himself almost as you know the new king of world football, of European football, only for Erling Haaland to do much the same later. I just want to focus on these two games, specifically Barca PSG and Sevilla Dortmund. Leipzig uh, lost 2-0 to Liverpool uh, as well, of course, and Porto beat Juve 2-1. Just as running out of time, I want to talk about uh, Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappe. PSG won 4-1 against Barcelona and Mbappe scored a hat-trick while Haaland scored a brace in Seville against Sevilla as Borussia Dortmund won 3-2. So just first on Mbappe, Jasmine, what are your thoughts on him? And like, how good do you think he is and how good do you think he can be? Like The way he scored his goals was just phenomenal, really. I, I thought he really kind of thrived on being the man of the hour as opposed to Neymar's accomplice. Oh, I absolutely adore him. I, I, I've never been so excited by a forward player since, like the likes of Messi, like the new generation. You always get, oh, this person's going to be the new Messi or the what have you. And I think Mbappe might really be it. I think there's a lot of Mbappe v Holland arguments at the moment, and everyone will want to judge. I will always take quite a, a a democratic kind of viewpoint and be like no they're two different players which I feel anyway um but I just love his style of play he just offers just 
if you could put class into a player, I would say it would be him. He, he has phenomenal underlying stats. And if you think about how well he does in Ligue 1, he's scored a couple of goals less than Haaland if we're looking domestically. Um, but I would argue also that Ligue 1 is a harder defensive um, league to actually play that way in. Uh, I mean, we always say about players, can they do it at Stoke on a wet Tuesday night? And um, it's always, it's. I think it's more out of, you really want to see them in different styles of football in different countries to see if they can keep that up. And normally they can. Uh, but I think it will be a shame if he does stay in France any longer just for people who want to see him. Um, uh, if you want to go on to Haaland, I will also can provide stats between the two if you'd like. Yeah, we will in a second for sure. I'm going to ask the two lads on their thoughts on Mbappe first. Just like it's a great point you made too, because I think you know, say whereas Dortmund will maybe be going toe to toe with um, other teams in the Bundesliga, I think every team who plays PSG in France is going to be setting up a low block and being ready to defend quite of quite rigidly, you could say, um, very much on the counter. Um, but just for you, Jonathan, like Mbappe. What do you make of him? Like, how good do you think he is? I saw quite a impassioned tweet from you um, after the game. Um, I get sense you enjoyed the game quite a lot. I, I think he's a really interesting player because, you know, obviously he's from the suburbs of Paris. His mother is Algerian. His father is, I think it's Cameroonian or Senegalese. I'm not sure which one. You can correct me on that if, if you know. But he kind of almost embodies, you know, this kind of modern France in a way that, you know... Uh, kind of maybe you know Thierry Henry did as well in the past and Zinedine Zidane did too um like how good do you think he is and he kind of plays the game in a way that's kind of unique isn't it really even like Messi and Ronaldo didn't play with the same pace and power and kind of almost effortlessness that he did it's almost like he's a a Ferrari in a world of you know four Skodas yeah I mean I, I was very excited off that game as you mentioned there Alan correctly um for me, nothing beats Champions League nights at, at, at the pinnacle of the game and the, the knockout stages. I think it's just the peak of world football. Um, and, and you know, about a year ago, we were just doing the knockout rounds again, weren't we? So we've pretty much had a year of our lives just sat behind our TV screen. So, you know, that it almost brings into almost even more sharp focus just how good um, the best Champions League, League nights are. You know, I mean, what a competition. Why they want to change it, I just can't understand. Um but you know, it's like the, just the pinnacle of sport for me. It's it's unbelievable, um, and I really really enjoyed that game. Uh, you know, there's so many storylines, obviously the Messi v Mbappe storyline, um, and I think I think if I'm being honest, I do think it's the, I think the media are trying to cram and shoehorn this um, Mbappe versus Haaland angle, maybe. And I think there's definitely a thirst to find the next Messi Ronaldo narrative, and it looks like maybe these are the two that that will be handpicked. Uh, we'll see if anyone else wants to step up and maybe maybe stake their claim in, in years to come. But uh, Kylian Mbappe is, you know, one of the most exciting players that I've seen in, in the last sort of five years, definitely. Um, breaking through at Monaco and winning the title, um, that was a thrilling team. You know, let's not forget there were players like Benjamin Mendy, maybe who's now at Manchester City, who maybe haven't quite gone on. Um, players like Bakayoko as well, Falcao. You know, that Monaco side was really, really good, but it, it was led by 
that young teenager to Kylian Mbappe and, and um, what he was doing there at that point in time, 17, 18 as a teenager, were just lit up uh, Liga. You know, we're talking about a World Cup winner here already, so you know, he's already got a place in the, in the pantheon of greats. I, I think if I was looking back at my, if, if you were asking me like my 10 favourite moments in football in the last sort of four or five years, Mbappe's probably already got about two or three of them, just just from a you know like a neutral point of view, not not maybe fan specific, but uh, the World Cup game against Argentina, one of the games I'll never forget, just the way he ripped apart Argentina in that game. So that was another M- Messi Mbappe, uh, you know, he's seeming to get the better of Messi quite a few times now in key games. Um, I mean, there's a lot of statistics around around the numbers with Mbappe and Haaland and, and how they compared to Messi and Ronaldo. I, I would like to just sort of balance it out a bit and give a counterpoint to the fact that. You know, Messi and Ronaldo at 21, they weren't strikers. So, you know, Mbappe is kind of a striker. He's a nine. Although he does play off the left, he is a striker, you know, out and out. He's a goal scorer. And Haaland is the most sort of prototype central centre forward you'll see. So I, I think comparing him to, for example, a Cristiano Ronaldo who was playing, you know, on the right wing at Manchester United at 18 or 19 is a little bit unfair. So you, you, we've seen a lot of the numbers saying, oh, well, they, they're putting up better numbers than Messi and Ronaldo. I think there needs to be a bit of nuance in in that sense because because they're completely different positions. Um, but but obviously I can understand the reason for that. A lot of it is because the modern the modern forward is considered a goal scorer, um, and so I think that reflects how football's evolved rather than the quality of the players. If that makes sense, um, you know, forwards now expected to score as well as assists. It wasn't it wasn't the case ten fifteen years ago when Messi and Ronaldo were kind of coming through. There were it was wingers and strikers. I think um, that you can argue anyway. Some people may agree, disagree with me, but yeah, Mbappe is just phenomenal. I mean, let's let's balance it out as well. He, he wasn't good at the weekend against Monaco. Uh, Monaco went to PSG and won two nil. That you know, PSG are not top of the league at this moment in time. They're struggling in Liga, and, and as a young player that I'm sure people will remember in years to come, or who may may go on to have a, a very good career by the name of Axel uh, De Sassi, he had a really good game, kept Mbappe quiet, and Monaco put a tactical game plan to keep Mbappe quiet, and it worked. And I think. The game in terms of the Champions League match was a reflection of the the, the downfall of Barcelona. They they just can't get anything right. Um, Alan, you're an Evertonian, so you'll tell me more about Ronald Koeman. But um, the the tactic to basically leave Usman Dembele completely with no defensive responsibilities, or maybe he didn't do his defensive responsibilities, was just asking for trouble against Mbappe. He, he you know it just allowed him to dominate. Um, but certainly for me, it's the best I've seen Mbappe play for 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 a long while. Yeah, I think Barcelona were quite poor for sure. I think. Uh, Serginho Des got a lot of flack in the Catalan press during the week because you know he was kind of made mincemeat of by uh, Dembele. I mean, uh, sorry, by uh, Mbappe and also Kurzawa overlapping on the left because as you mentioned Dembele didn't do any defensive covering. And I think the criticism from Catalonia was very much that Kumin fell between two stools. He neither pressed PSG or sat off them, so it was kind of a, a disastrous setup. And I think kind of really showed a lot of their flaws. And that's my opinion of. Cummins Barcelona I think they're doing quite well in La Liga uh, last week, yesterday's game aside um, but when it comes to the big big games where you're coming up against serious tacticians like Mauricio Pochettino I think you need to have that next level and I don't think he does and I don't think that this Barcelona team are trained properly to compete amongst Europe's elite and I think that that would be the case for however long Koeman is in charge, I think that they will not challenge for the European Cup genuinely, as in be a proper heavyweight in the manner that, in which they were until they have a proper coach in charge. I don't think Koeman is capable of that. Um, but I think it's a good point you made too about Ronaldo and Messi um, because I think that 
when Ronaldo and Messi were breaking through at this age, uh, they were very much cogs in big teams. You know, Messi was Ronaldinho's understudy. Ronaldo obviously was a completely different player to what we know uh, him as today. And he was very much learning the ropes under Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, but I think also that, you know, Mbappe and Haaland wouldn't be Mbappe and Haaland without Ronaldo and Messi because I think that Ronaldo and Messi pushed the envelope of what's possible as a footballer. It rewrote the rule book. It rewrote the, the ceiling you can reach. And it basically inspired youngsters to kind of think, you know, you can actually do whatever you can possibly conceptualize in football because if you look at Messi's numbers over his career, they've never been repeated ever since. Uh, in, in, the football, in the history of football, nobody's ever touched what he's done. I think it was 10 seasons of 40-plus goals a season. Obviously, in 2012, he scored 91 goals in that calendar year. And I think that, you know, who knows if Mbappe and Haaland will be Messi and Ronaldo in the future. I'm sure Jasmine has some stats to maybe investigate that a bit further. But I think that, for sure, Messi and Ronaldo are the blame, you could say, for two players who are such problems like this. But just before we go into your stats, Jasmine, just to ask John, what are your thoughts on Mbappe's performance against Barcelona and also his kind of swagger in general? Do you think he's, how good do you think he is? This was an instance where it's a real pity there weren't fans in the stadium because I think it would have went down how Ronaldo Phenomeno scoring a hat-trick at Old Trafford in 2003 would have went down. I would envisage him getting a standing ovation from the Camp Nou crowd in a similar kind of manner to the way which Ronaldinho had uh, had Real Madrid fans applauding him when he scored at the Bernabeu win. I think it was 2005 or either 2006, one of those two years. So I feel like it's just a shame that a lot of people weren't there in person, especially away PSG fans, to witness the majesty of Mbappe's performance. He was absolutely scintillating. And that's we're going to talk about that performance in 15, 20, 30 years' time as being maybe... I'm not going to say it's his breakout because he's been a brilliant player for years and he's won a World Cup. But we're going to talk about that as really like a high watermark which against which against a lot of top strikers are going to be judged because that was absolutely phenomenal and about him as a player I absolutely love him his his motion is so smooth he is ridiculously quick but it never looks like he's exerting himself he has that kind of Terry on re kind of swagger and real like smoothness of movement kind of like a velvet touch and I remember he scored a goal at Old Trafford in the Champions League where it was a pullback from either Di Maria or Bernat, someone on the left wing anyway. But he was basically outside of the box, maybe 10 or 15 yards, and I have never seen acceleration like it to get on the end of the ball. It was frightening. So I'm I'm a huge fan of his, and I'm really interested to see where his next step is going to be, uh, whether he'll stay at PSG or go elsewhere. But whatever club is lucky enough to have him is going to have an absolute gem for the best part of the next decade, I would say. Absolutely. And the next night, of course, we were treated to another incredible performance, kind of underlining Jonathan's point about the majesty of the European Cup slash Champions League. Uh, Erling Haaland scored a brace at Sevilla to really kind of dismantle them. It was kind of a weird game because I felt like Sevilla didn't do themselves justice in the first half, especially they kind of set up poorly in midfield, didn't give the defence the cover they should have gotten, and Jadon Sancho and obviously Haaland ran riot. Rakitic particularly looked off the pace, I thought. I thought he really kind of looked his age, and he was guilty directly for, I think it was Mbappe's, or uh, Haaland's second goal. But just uh, for you, uh, Jasmine, like you obviously watch uh, Haaland week in, week out. Uh, 
how good is he? And like, do you think, you know, he really has what it takes to challenge Mbappe for this crown of the best player in the world? Like he spoke after the game in Seville that, you know, he was inspired by Mbappe's hat-trick. Do you think that this is going to be the Messi-Ronaldo of the 2020s? Again, I don't like to pay on. And as the, as Jonathan said, like they're, di- they're different players at the, these ages compared to Messi and Ronaldo. And um, even between Mbappe and Holland, like, especially if you're looking at the eye test, Holland is that perfect centre forward and he can do it all. (laughs) He is some force of nature that the footballing gods bestowed onto us, (laughs) especially his goal against Schalke um, this weekend where he just kind of hung into the air. Like it's just like gymnasts somehow do. And the guy's huge. Um, But to, I, I mean, he is, I think he could dominate any team, but uh, I mean, we have seen things go a little bit wrong with him in Dortmund, just facing um, more defensive teams where they they have too much of the ball and it can be a bit wasteful. That being said, those performances are rare, um, but just something that if he wants to be the best and even go over Mbappe of, that's something he will need to do. But in terms of Mbappe and Haaland, like, they are slightly different roles. It's, Mbappe just has a little bit more versatility and movement, which, it, you know, if you're classing the best strikers of these things, you have to take those little aspects into um into consideration but one stat that I will give you is the just crazy numbers that both have um xg per 90 of both players um in their respective leagues Holland is 0.88 per 90 and Mbappe's 0.93 per 90 is a, it's basically you're just short off a goal a game incredible isn't it and what and what you, what's the kind of latest rumors coming out of germany about his future um like obviously as soon as both those performances happened i texted into a group chat and i was kind of saying okay my week is uh, sorted for the next well my month actually is sorted uh, in terms of writing about erland Haaland and killing mbappe every single day several times a day and yeah like the spanish press have gone absolutely crazy for him for both of them should i say and you know for mbappe it's a bit complicated. I think they're quite pessimistic about getting him out of PSG this summer. I think the idea is he's going to stay at PSG for another season at the moment. Uh, but for Haaland, it's a bit more fluid. I think there may be more open uh, adornment for him leaving this summer because they're going through some financial difficulties themselves. And uh, obviously, there's kind of a gentleman's clause written to his contract for next summer, which is about 75 million euros, I think. And I think if he were to go this summer, it would be in the region of 110. So where do you think he could go and where do you think he should go? Or should he stay? If they don't get Champions League, then I don't think he'd want to stay. He's one of the best. He wants to prove that he's one of the best. And he would love to go at a club that is in the best competitions. Um, I honestly don't think Dortmund will get Champions League. I don't think they're good enough with Terzic to manage workload to win this year's Champions League. Um, I think with the money that's involved for him, it's going to be quite hard to see him at most clubs. I think it's somewhere like, as you said, with 
Real Madrid sniffing around Mbappe and Mbappe choosing to probably stay at PSG until 2023. They might want to put that money into Haaland instead. I think that would be a better move for him um, if I'm thinking about it. But look, where else can you go at the moment, <laughs> really? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think some... It, a major club, Spain. I don't think England will probably put up the money. And if United are probably going to go for Sancho again, they won't look at Holland. And I think they're the only. I don't think Man City will spend that much money when it's a problem that they don't need fixing. Yeah, Barcelona are in a horrendous financial situation as well. But the talk there is that, you know, given the depth of their crisis and especially if they really crash out of the Champions League to PSG and they fail to put up with these challenge for La Liga and they also lose the second leg of the Copa del Rey semi-final Sevilla and they kind of end the season trophyless new president comes in there is talk that they'll move heaven and earth sell you know their grandmothers and try and bring in Haaland's uh, this summer just as a kind of a statement signing that maybe will give them a bit of self-confidence self-belief um, but yeah it's going to be interesting for sure uh, but for you Jonathan like what do you think about the futures of Mbappe and of Haaland because obviously neither one of them are playing in well they're both playing in the elite but they aren't really playing in the elite of the elite you could say in terms of you know Bayern Munich or Manchester City or Real Madrid they're not playing at a club that's you know fighting amongst it on the biggest stage week in week out so what do you think will their future projection look like in the next five years say um, and also what should it look like for you I know you're a big fan of Ligue 1 and not, and not you know, denigrating League One. I'm just saying, like, what do you think they will be doing in the next few years? Yeah, you, you'd already prefaced, you'd already, you'd already re- pre-read my mind on that last comment there. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, good knowledge. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to say, I think Nasser Khalifi of PSG will probably, uh, will probably argue with you there that he's not in the elite elite after he just smashed uh, Barcelona, who I'm sure many would say are in the elite uh, 4-1 in their own back garden. But um no, I mean obviously I take your point, and, and, and I know I know what you're getting at um, the 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 sort of um, reputation of League One, maybe the visibility of it. You know, it's understandable comments. Um, yeah, really, really good uh, debate, to be honest. And I've, I've been interested to hear all, all your guys' views. Um, I think, yeah, I, I agree with a lot. You know, I agree with, for example, what Jasmine says about about Highland, and I think. Um, it's a, it's a difficult one because of the pandemic at the end of the day. I think fo- football's thirst for storylines and, and, and the financial power of football and the direction that finances take football in would have meant that we, we would have seen some significant moves, I think, in this either this year just gone or this next year coming if we weren't in the middle of a global crisis. Finances now have meant that clubs are borrowing money um, going to invest Australian hedge funds to basically be able to pay their wages, Macquarie Bank and places like that. Um, so the finances dictate that maybe Mbappe and Haaland, they, they might not move as early as, as maybe would have been forecast. But then again, that might be nonsense. Maybe maybe these investment companies are going are gonna, to are gonna fund it. Um, but I think there's a bigger opportunity for the likes of Dortmund and, and, um, and PSG to keep those two players than they would have been without the pandemic. Because I think, I think Real Madrid... I think they purposefully did not sign a player last summer because they wanted a statement signing this coming window. And I, and I think that statement signing was either Mbappe or Haaland. I think it would probably have been Mbappe. But now it's going to be a question of 
probably, you know, for want of a, to not be around the bush, basically, can the Spanish government help them enough to be able to afford that at this moment in time? A bit like when they bought their training ground for 100 plus million over when they were struggling last time. Because Real Madrid's finances dictate that they're maybe, maybe not in that situation to, to be able to, um, to be able to afford Mbappe, maybe. I don't know. Uh, Barcelona is almost out of the question. I'd really like to get John's views because he mentioned earlier in the show about um, maybe Liverpool would have sold one of Salah or Mane. And I think there's a storyline potentially there where Salah replaces Messi at Barcelona. Um, and I'd be interested to hear John's views on that. You know, I, I think that's something that's maybe been a bit underplayed. I think I think Salah maybe in his final season at Liverpool, I don't know. Uh, just from the interview he gave to AS in Spain, uh, where he sort of gave a, a long, wide-ranging wide interview and said he wasn't happy of not being Liverpool captain. Um, and I think there's a storyline there maybe that could unfold. Um, but yeah, I mean, they will be the two biggest names of this window. You've got the Mina factor with with Haaland. You know, how's he going to play it? I think he was very smart smart to instill that uh, buyout clause. The Dortmund project, you know, as Jasmine will probably speak more on more eloquently than me, that, that project look like, looks like potentially falling apart if they don't get in the Champions League because you've got Sancho that they were going to get 120 million for. And now, you know, if they don't get Champions League football, that, that how much do they get there for him? And then do they have to sell Haaland, which would be a bit of a, a disaster for their project, I think, to lose both of them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm probably just rambling without really giving you any answers. But, but um, I, you know, it's really hard for me to say. I, th- I, th- I think at the end of the day, the, the, the key points here are Haaland has a, a release clause that will trigger at some point in the next year. So that obviously gives him and his people the advantage, in whether he stays for one more year or leaves. And Mbappe has one year left on his contract. He's, he's got a contract to 2022. Now, if PSG don't tie that down very, very quickly, he, he, in my opinion, he's off. I, I, think he, I think he wants to move on. I think he sees himself as kind of the next Ronaldo type, maybe at Real Madrid uh, or maybe Barcelona, somewhere like that. I'd love to see Man United try and sign him, but I think the ambition of the club there these days is kind of, I don't think they really think on, on that high level, unfortunately, to go and sign a world-class player like they did with Ronaldo 15 years ago you know, um, 17 years ago. But I think Mbappe's there for the taking for someone who really wants to put their project behind it. You know, do they end up at Manchester City? If they do, then that's quite worrying for the rest of world football. Um, but uh, certainly it's a, it's a really interesting storyline that we're going to be following in the next six six or so months. And, and a lot of it, it depends on where Messi ends up because Messi's also got an outgoing contract. So it's really... Um, it's going to be a fascinating few months, I think, in that transfer market from that point of view. It, it could reshape world football, basically. It could reshape European football, 100%. I think it's a massive summer, for sure, because as you mentioned, Messi is, you know, his future is up in the air. And like, if he does go, I mentioned if Barca fail quite badly in the three fronts they're fighting on at the moment, they'll have to move big in the window. But if Messi goes, they'll absolutely have to move big in the window or risk a complete and utter mutiny, you know, from their fan base who are not one to take things lying down. So I think Messi will be an intriguing plot uh, this coming summer, but also Sergio Ramos coming to the end of his Real Madrid contract, David Alaba's on the move. You know, there's several things happening there, but just John, do you want to touch on the point Jonathan made about um, Mbappe's future and the links to Liverpool? Because, you know, obviously Salah has been into Barcelona. Uh, Sadio Mane has been into PSG. You've spoken of that in the past and how that fits into their kind of wider marketing plan. But w- what do you think about, you know, this coming transfer window, specifically in relation to Liverpool? and how their activity uh, could affect the way things go in the next five years in European football. 
I think um, a lot will hinge on whether Liverpool finish in the top four. If they don't, I don't necessarily think there's going to be a massive exodus of players, but it will really compromise their ability to attract the best players and to pay to pay the biggest wages. I've already mentioned that the owners don't really put in their money. They just use the club's money. So if the club has lesser money coming in, their coffers throughout a lack of Champions League uh, income, then you know they're not going to be in a position unless there's a change of tax from the owners, which I would doubt, they're not going to be in a position to uh, to pay uh, the biggest names, even if they could attract them. So I think uh, I think it will probably be the, the last number of one of either Mane or Salah, but it's just complicated by the fact that I don't know what clubs have the money to sign them that also want to hitch their wagon to a 29-year-old. I mean, there could be clubs with money, but they may want to look for a younger player who they can make, to borrow an American football term, who can make their franchise player for the next number of years and build around them. Like, for example, if you had a choice between Salah and Mbappe, they're both excellent players right now, but one is going to be 29 and the other one is is significantly younger. So I think a lot of clubs would vouch for going for Mbappe. So it, it, it will be interesting. I think a lot will depend on the end of the season. Uh, in the French press to talk about the last day that uh, Mbappe's uh, entourage, including his father, have a good relationship with the Liverpool owners. Liverpool tried to sign him before he went to PSG. His, uh, his father actually spent a lot of time with John W. Henry, who was Liverpool's owner, on his private jet in the south of France, which is just like the billionaire's playground. I can only imagine what they were talking about high in the sky in a private jet. So... Uh, and especially because Mbappe is a Nike athlete and Nike uh, would m- maybe want to make a statement like yeah, like Adidas did with Paul Pogba at Manchester United in 2016. So I think Real Madrid would be this would be the favourites to get him, but I, I don't think Liverpool signing him if they finish in top four is beyond the realms of possibility, even if it would be unlikely. And as for as for Mbappe and Haaland, I both see them ending up at Real Madrid. It's just when. Yeah, really, really interesting comments and and I think what one thing I, I really like to see if I just want to add a final point to it I really hope that I think that the, a lot of this could be dictated by the European Super League and I think that if I was to say where I hope what I hope happens I hope that basically a restructuring of world football doesn't allow the teams that have been poorly managed to kind of bail their way out of it just on reputation alone you know you, you look at a team like Barcelona for example and, and um, you know the presidential elections are coming up and there's a, a lot of talk about well, let's um, you know, let's we're going to sign Mbappe and we're going to sign X, Y, and Z, and and obviously that will be based on leverage debt and buyouts and that kind of thing. I really, really, I really would like to see teams that kind of don't manipulate their finances be in a situation to be able to to sign these top players because I think we are potentially looking at a restructuring of world football, and and I think the teams that have been really, really badly run, and this was an interesting comment made by Christian Seifer, who who runs um, the European leagues. Association, which which um, he made a comment in the Financial Times, um, basically saying that the last sort of twenty years, clubs have, have had more money than ever and have seemingly still managed to, to you know be in huge debt. And he kind of had a bit of a dig essentially at, at La Liga, maybe maybe the Premier League to a certain extent as well. Um, he, I think he used to run the, the the German Football Federation as well. And um, and I think it's a good point in a way because we're, we're looking at we're looking at a crossroads here where cl- um, clubs are gonna maybe get a bit of a bailout in the sense of if a European Super League does come along, it's going to give the funds for the likes of Barcelona, Real Madrid and, and the top European clubs to kind of go off and have their own cake and eat it and maybe sell their own TV rights and, 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 and essentially bring in much more revenues, which they, they're kind of pushing for. And it's going to be to the detriment of teams that maybe the likes of Leicester 
or teams who have cut their cloth accordingly, who who have kind of organically, Dortmund even you can argue as well, kind of organically grown in, in the last sort of 10, 15 years just through their own good management decisions uh, in, into teams that have won league titles. And, and so I just hope that this isn't, uh, uh, you know, usually this is what will happen, isn't it, in the world of business, that the, the, the big companies will, will find a way to get away from the competition. But I, th- I think they are facing a lot of competition and, and, and you know, it, for example, if Mbappe was to end up at Barcelona, it won't, it won't be it won't be through kind of good financial management, will it? It will be through kind of money that they probably don't have. And so I just just wanted to add that. Finally, I hope that I hope that um, it, it plays out in a kind of relatively organic way, rather than you know if we end up with the European Super League and the best players go off and play in the Super League just because they get money thrown at them. So we'll see where it goes. But I just hope that um, I hope the clubs who have managed themselves in in the right way over the last ten years do also get rewards for it. That's a very salient point, and I think it's everything in Spain too. You have, you know, Sevilla, for instance, a very well-run club financially and sportingly, um, but they're, you know, finding it quite difficult to really compete with the big boys when it comes to the crunch end of the season. Um, we'll see this season how things pan out, but you know, they'd be rank rank outsiders in the title race, and they, even if they do make it the title race and compete to the end, you know, their team would probably get picked apart in the summer, and that was actually helped last summer because of the pandemic because teams didn't have the money to try and pry Lucas Ocampos away. Obviously, Sergio Reguilón went back to Madrid alone and then went to Spurs and, you know, several other players. Jules Koundé is another one, Diego Carlos. They're kind of players who, in normal times, in my opinion, would have been sold last summer if it were not for the pandemic. So I think it's kind of almost like the game's really against them and that's getting worse, not better. And I think that, you know, the way European football is going is going towards a kind of a ring fence, elite, and kind of a closed, you know, NFL style Super League. I think it's only a matter of time, really. Unfortunately, I think it goes against everything we love about football. But I think it's also the way the financial model is going, and that's being expedited by the pandemic, in my opinion. So I don't know; it's kind of crazy. But anyway, we're kind of out of time. So I just get a last word from each of you on uh, kind of the conversation of today, and also your predictions for the Champions League football coming up next week. Uh, Atletico are playing Chelsea tomorrow night um, in Budapest because. Spain won't allow English citizens into the country uh, because of COVID. Uh, Lazio are playing Bayern Munich. Atlanta are hosting Real Madrid. Borussia Mönchengladbach are playing Manchester City. So just, Jasmine, go to you first. Just what are your thoughts and kind of, you know, do you have any closing thoughts on the topics you've discussed today and also on the upcoming week of European football? Ooh, um, I'll quickly go European football um, and do my little predictions. Atlético Madrid, Chelsea draw. Lazio, Bayern draw. Um, Mönchengladbach, Man City, Man City, and I haven't written the last match, which is Real Madrid someone, and I'm just going to say Real Madrid. Atlanta. Yeah, Real Madrid. (laughs) Perfect. And do you have any last word you want to say on what we're talking about, or are you good? Um, I have no idea what is the next few fixtures, but you can find me on Twitter on underscore Jasmine Barber or Spielvillagerang, where I'm writing every now and then. Perfect, perfect. And John, what are your thoughts on the fixtures and what's the last word? Where can people get you on socials? One of the things I was thinking today is that I think Lazio can knock Bayern Munich out. Obviously, I'm prepared to be spectacularly wrong, as I more often than not am. I just think Bayern look very jaded. I think their high line is susceptible to pace. And in Chiro Immobile, Lazio have one of the most deadly strikers in Europe in the last three or four years. So I think that's perhaps something to keep an eye on. They're also very adept at playing on the counter-attack. So I think that uh, Lazio can can certainly uh, knock out Bayern Munich, the champions. Uh, 
And I think Chelsea and Atletico Madrid is very, very hard to call. I just think that perhaps Atletico will be too streetwise room over the course of two legs. Um, as for my social, you can find me at NotoriousJOS. Uh, I wrote something for Anfield Index today about Ozan Kabak and why Liverpool fans should cut him some slack because in terms of being a centre-half, he's a child. It's <laughs> rhyme there as well. It's rhyme. Yeah. Sick is the title, is it, of the piece? My, uh, I think the title is uh, why uh, Liverpool fans should, co- should get back Ozan. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Interesting. Any of those record labels wants to speak to me, they can touch my people. <laughs> well, so you're tweeting with ASAP, was it ASAP 12 yesterday? So maybe you're the yeah. one of the mobs. Second ASAP mob. Are you number three after Rocky and 12 uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I might move up the ladder after this. <laughs> and you, Jonathan, um, your socials, please, and also your predictions. Yeah, I think that's some top tier panery there from uh, from John. Uh, I like that a lot. Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at predictions, by the way, and I never, I, I'm always really bad at them. So anything I say probably is going to be be wrong. But I do think I, th- I do think John makes a great point. I think Lazio have a really good chance against Bayern. I think they've been a little bit under under the, under the weather. In, in in recent weeks, um, I, I, I struggle with predictions to be honest. The only one I'm going to say is I think Atlanta have got a really good chance to knock out Real Madrid. Uh, I think that could be a real for me. That's the tie of the of this week. I'm I'm really looking forward to that game. Atletico Chelsea could go either way. I think Chelsea, I think Social's done a really really good job. Um, and the other two I'm going to just sit spectacularly on the fence for. So um, yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter at JF Football F U T B O L. And of course, if you really, really want to push me into into making a prediction, then just tweet me on there, and uh, maybe I'll think about it a bit more. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And then for me, you can catch me on uh, Twitter at Azulfeeling, um, as always. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it, guys. Thanks so much for joining uh, me, everybody. It was kind of a very interesting discussion. Lots of football to talk about, you know, especially with the Champions League games and stuff. There's so much going on. But thank you, John. Cheers, guys. Thank you, Jasmine. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks very much. It was really good to spend time with you guys. Enjoyed it. And thanks to you guys, the listeners. If you enjoyed it, please uh, leave a rating and uh, recommend it to a friend because it would help us massively in our uh, growth and stuff like that. And uh, it also, let us know if you like these kind of longer form versions of the pod, kind of more discussion-based thing um, on Twitter. But yeah, thanks very much for joining us, guys. I hope you enjoy the week of football and uh, talk to you soon. Bye.